0: to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 26, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Eero, and in recognition of Invasive Species Awareness Week, we're going to be covering some invasive species of carp.
0: We've got not just one but two fish biologists with us. We've got Mark Fritz from our Lacrosse Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office in Wisconsin. We've got Tyler Gross from our Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Offices Ohio River Substation in West Virginia. So, very happy you two can join us today.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Okay, so we've covered common carp in season 3 and for this episode, we're focusing in on that group of fishes that Guy mentioned First things first, what fish fall into this category? What species?
2: That's a great question. So the invasive carp category, there there are four species in there. Um, Big head carp and silver carp are the most well-known, most uh, well-established, we'll say. But there's also black carp and grass carp, which grass carp pretty well inundated throughout many river systems and whatnot. That's the one carp people are probably most familiar with, is the grass carp.
0: Yeah. And in terms of how they look, they've got an interesting eye placement that makes them look kind of goofy. But we'd love if you could just help us imagine what these fish look like if we haven't seen them before.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. They are kind of an odd duck. Their their eyeball is just at or below their mouth opening. These are filter feeding fish, so they got a a pretty big mouth opening, big head and silver do anyway. they got some specialized gill rakers that allow them to pull out all the, the yummy food in the water. We see just some incredible adaptations for
3: eating, specifically those gill rakers, and they are prodigious feeders and highly adaptive to the new ecosystems that they've invaded.
0: So, you mentioned gill rakers. What exactly are those, and where do you find them in the fish? What do they look like?
2: Gill rakers are are uh, found just below the operculum, which is the little kind of the little flap. Most most people think about a fish, and they look like they're gulping. That's the operculum. That's creating that pump, right? That pumps the water across their gills and allows them to um, breathe. But for these fish, that's kind of a special term, doesn't it, Mark?
1: It reminds me of baleen a little bit. If you think about the gills of a fish, they're used for breathing. And They got the the gill arch, which is like a bone mm-hmm. that holds all these blood vessels off of it. But then coming off on the other side, you have these kind of filamentous, if it's comb-like, or kind of grindstone-like, and they use it to either filter stuff out or to grind things on sort of the inside of their throat.
3: Your analogy to bay lane is very accurate because the function of these gill rakers and carp is to is to filter out plankton. So as the water is traveling through to help the fish breathe, those gill rakers are filtering out the food and the water as well.
0: Yeah. And talking about fish-eyed rakers are uh, one of the ways to get a little more information about the fish if you really want to dig into some of the specifics of fish idea it can get pretty complicated
1: it's worth talking about the etymology of some of these too. is related specifically to the gill rakers. like grass carp the genus name is tenopharyngidon which means comb throat the black mm. carp i think is mylopharyngidon which means like millstone throat so <laughs> huh. yeah
3: yeah black carp got those pharyngeal teeth mm. those yeah. crushing organs in the back. Yeah. The yeah. idea is they're molluscal and they need to be able to crotch those shells.
1: That's so cool. Why don't we just dive into a little bit about this name change? Where these fish come from? Why there's been this name change? I know that there's a <laughs> lot of disputes over yeah. what, where to draw the line for families and subfamilies, but these mm-hmm. fish, yeah. despite all being called carp, actually fall from these really different kind of groups that all kind of get this common name of these kind of scaly big fish that are often raised in aquaculture but anyhow they're from east asia they're calling them invasive carp now
3: the term asian carps has been problematic for a long time it's a blanket uh that as you said, encompasses uh, a lot of different species with a lot of different life history strategies, different invasive qualities, different invasive distributions. So we're telling a very different story about different species and, and it's best if we refer to these specifically to the species that we're discussing. Yeah. So in the case that I'm working with here on the Upper Mississippi River, I work primarily with silver carp, big head carp and grass carp. But um, there was a paper that came out by a guy named Patrick Kakowski with USGS, where he made a very good argument that we should stop using the term Asian carp out, out of a sense of inclusivity and awareness of problems with that language. And so we've adopted that that term invasive carp as a means to describe that group of species.
0: Yeah, I like that point of being able to specify the species as well. And I think in terms of people IDing fish and being able to recognize certain fish, I mean, you run into issues with folks misidentifying like a buffalo or a bowfin with a Mm -hmm. common carp. So I think that's a really good point to really be familiar with the particular species you're dealing with. I am curious if people misidentify any of these invasive carps you mentioned as some of the native species we have.
2: Yeah, totally. When you talk about the profile, where the eye sits, once you see one, you, you get it, like you see it, it's so far removed from anything else you'd see out there that you you kind of get that that's one of the invasive carps.
3: Yeah. One, yep. one of the biggest issues that we face is that they're hard to differentiate from the from juvenile native species. So, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about bait, fishing bait, and there's cases yep. where they get into bait rearing. Uh, facilities and and they get intermixed with bait fishes and then they can be inadvertently tr- transferred and released that way yeah yeah they look a lot like a small gizzard shad when they're little and the uneducated observer could easily make that mistake
1: how would you distinguish the juveniles from say a young gizzard shad
3: well, there's clear differentiations for a person who understands uh, fish ID and looks for those key characteristics. Eye placement's a big one. Mouth placement's a big one. Fin structures, coloration. Those are the kind of things that we as fish biologists are trained to recognize. But for a lot of people, they may not have that background in training when they go by bait and they may not be able to tell the difference. Yeah,
1: good point. So... How did these fishes become invasive in the United States in the first place?
3: During the 1950s and 60s, you had people like Rachel Carson describing the chemical pesticide issues that were pervasive in America, all the problems associated with the use of those. Obviously, Silent Spring is the the product of that time that most resonates with all of us. Um but in response to a lot of that, people in agriculture, especially fish culture, they, they looked for ways to control pests without chemicals. And so, as you know, in aquaculture facilities, uh, weeds, parasites, those are pests that have to be controlled within these intensive fish-rearing systems. And so, they brought in species like the grass carp as a biological control weed, and the black carp was brought in as a biological control of snails that are carriers of certain pathogens and parasites. Yeah, um, and so that's how they got
1: here.
0: That seems like a common thread across the world, bringing in <laughs> other species to control species we don't like, and then they become an invasive species. Right. I'm curious, like the cane, um, cane
2: toad, right?
0: Yeah, I was thinking cane yeah. toads for sure. Um, so they were they were brought here to help control these pests. And how do they actually get out into the environment?
2: Yeah, they brought them into these facilities in the deep south, right along Mississippi, Mississippi floods, right? And that's how critters escaped. And, and then they got into the Mississippi, started doing their thing, being successful in reproduction. And, and then they just start trickling further up uh, the Mississippi, which is a, a low gradient systems, very similar to their home range. And invasive species are very adaptable. They're very flexible when they are able to establish and move. And that's kind of how it started.
3: They're incredibly fecund. one female to produce over a million eggs each year. Yeah, they can spawn in great numbers. Well, you can imagine just the productive capacity of these populations and their resistance to overfish.
1: What have been the effects so far of these fishes?
3: They have incredible abilities to adapt to different food sources, so they are directly competing for food resources with any other species in the river that consumes plankton. And the problem is that every fish species, even our most prized sport fishes like walleye and largemouth bass, when they're very small, they consume plankton. Mm -hmm. And so uh, these large, voracious feeders are actively competing against nearly every fish species in the river for the plankton resources uh the big head and silver carp their gill rakers are smaller than a lot of our native species and because of that they are able to filter out uh, a wider range of plankton from the water column and they are more efficient feeders as far as black carp goes they're molluscabores we have a lot of imperiled mollusks, uh, snails, and mussels in the Mississippi River, and we're obviously worried about the effects that these black carp could have on them by directly consuming or harming those species.
0: Could you just name a few other native species that are, as adults, Planktivorous, or maybe were in these niches before these fish came in and have been kind of booted out of there?
3: Yeah, in the Mississippi River, we have paddlefish that are native planktivores, very iconic native planktivores. We also have bigmouth buffalo and gizzard chad. There's some very interesting publications that have come out in the last decade or so that have shown body condition declines in both of those species mm-hmm. during, during the same time that invasive carp have become established in those regions. So mm-hmm. they are being... It impacted very badly by the by the presence of the cart. Tyler, do, can you offer up some, some grass cart?
2: Yeah. So uh, kind of in the same vein as that, right? It's, it's that direct competing with native species. When, when you think about uh, just the amount of biomass, how successful, especially silver and big head are, how successful they've been. They, they create this big biomass out there that competes with paddlefish. That's another really important huh. fish species that we have here in the Ohio that pushes native fish into new areas or just outcompetes and, and, and you're causing decline in population numbers, right? So that's what makes them so nasty and so volatile, especially if they're so successful. And you can get so many carp. They, they are density-dependent species. So when they get to the point, you, you start to see these source populations feed these immigrants that are pushing their range further up. And that's where we're at on the Ohio River. We're just getting the far stretches, far reaches of silver and big head. And we we still have some good community data here with our native species that we see. But every time we go out, we interact a little more with these invasive critters. So they're definitely exploring the range and they're definitely trying to push that migration further upstream. So
0: yeah, uh, that biomass is kind of crazy. I've seen those videos where someone's electroshocking and they're just like flying out out of the water. There's tons of them. They're huge. I mean, they're a big fish as well. So you can see where they're really...
2: Consuming yeah, a lot of
0: that
2: food web. It yeah, absolutely, and that's kind of one of the one of the the main pillars, as you say, of of you know why they're so bad is they could, they could hurt you because they could literally do damage to yourself or to your boat, right? If if you're out fishing, uh, they have a startle reflex, so as soon as you start your boat and start moving, they'll spook, they'll jump up out of the water. and We've definitely been in situations where you creep up to a structure when we're electrofishing for them, and you you hit the you hit the electricity, and it's just Chaos, right? Utter, you got fish flying here and there. Some of them will actually jump into the boats. And it's just, you know, chaos. They're they're crazy. They're incredibly hard to, to get a hold of, especially electrofishing, because they are so skittish they sense it coming from away, a little bit of a tickle from the electricity, and they're out of there. So that they are challenging to get a hold of.
4: Hmm. Hmm. Ong Time for a minute with Maria, with me, Maria Dosal, calling in from Chogyang lands here in Dillingham, Alaska. I really enjoyed listening to our guest, Kagasaka, for coming out and talking with us about invasive carpet. I think it's super important that we talk about these invasive species because it's important to educate yourself, uh, depending on where you're at, on how to treat your gear so that we can avoid having these invasive catastrophes in the future. Here in Alaska, we have banned the use of belt waders just in case there's aquatic hitchhikers. When you're moving from one body of water to another, make sure you're cleaning, draining, drying your equipment and gear so you can minimize the risk of spreading aquatic hitchhikers into new locations. Another good tool to have in your back pocket is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Invasive Species Hotline. The number for thats eight seven seven invasive without the E. 1-877-468-2748 for the Invasive Species Hotline. By educating yourself and using these tools, we can take care of our precious and beautiful waters in our wonderful area.
1: So, Tyler, you were talking there a little bit about the range extension of these fishes. And for as long as I can remember, they've been working to try and make sure these fish don't make it into the Great Lakes system. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what's being done to keep them out and then why it's so important to keep them out of that system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Getting Silver and Big Head especially into the Great Lakes would be very detrimental to the recreational fishery. for number one. I mean, just the amount of that direct competing and filling the lakes with just a bunch of carp would be bad. You'd see a huge decline in some of the native fisheries up there that bring in a lot of folks to come fish to Great Lakes. So, That's number one. And then uh, number two, they can cause harm to yourself or to your boat. So there's two ways they can get in there. Uh, One is through a pathway right outside my window here of the Muskingum River in Ohio. You get all the way to the headwaters of that. You can get some flooding and you can get those fish through flood events could pop over the divide. And then now you're going from the Ohio River drainage into the Lake Erie drainage, right? I know Ohio, um, their DNR, they may have already completed blocking that particular pathway off of getting into the Great Lakes. And then the other transmission into the Great Lakes is further up the Ohio, kind of the headwaters of the Ohio, where again, you kind of get a the divide and you start seeing drainage down into the Great Lakes. So, definitely want to stop that migration. We're, we're, again, where, where I'm at here in Williamstown, West Virginia, is, is my station. We're just at the far reaches of that. So, we haven't seen that mass movement yet. But there are a few individuals triple up through as we use EDNA. We can get detections uh, of mm-hmm. invasive carp.
0: Talked about eDNA before, but for folks who aren't familiar with that term, can you just give us like a 20-second summary of what that is and how it's useful?
2: Yeah, in a nutshell, all fish shed a little bit of DNA, right, in the water column. When we take water samples, we're looking for DNA for particular species, in this case, invasive carp. So we have uh, sites here uh, in West Virginia waters, as well as up um, in Pennsylvania waters, kind of around the Pittsburgh area to track and monitor if we get any positive hits for a particular marker for silver carp, let's say, or for a big head carp or just invasive carp in general. So it's very powerful. It's a very informative tool that can help you figure out where you may want to shift efforts to if you're looking for any kind of early detection and monitoring of where these species could be. So it helps guide our efforts through the summer of going out and looking for fish. Yeah,
0: it's super cool. So environmental DNA, so DNA found in the environment. In the
2: environment, yeah. yeah.
3: Uh, It's pretty much the same story for us. You use it on the periphery of your known distribution of the fish. And the idea is that you're looking for any indication that periphery might have changed. One of the most, the the primary entry points into the Great Lakes is the Chicago area waterway system. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's, It's an artificial canal and so you have a direct connection between lake michigan and the illinois and upper mississippi rivers that's been the primary focus for silver and big Head carp containment so far there's an electric barrier just uh, downstream of chicago that's been in operation for quite a long time now hmm. um and there are many carp uh, downstream of that barrier and, and our partners with the state of illinois are using contracted commercial fishers to try to drive down those populations. As much as is possible to take pressure off of that barrier, there's also plans in the works with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to completely rebuild what's called the Brandon Road Lock and Dam, which is the first dam up above that confluence of the cause. And that would create almost a permanent barrier. There would, there would be shipping channels to go around it, but it would be nearly a complete barrier between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River once completed.
2: Yeah. Getting them into Great Lakes would be bad, be really bad.
0: You mentioned some control downriver of there. Are, Are there other ways that folks are like the public or fishermen are working to control these fish?
3: Yeah. I mean, my primary duty here at La Crosse is fish telemetry. So I go out and I capture and tag invasive carp and we use a technique called trader fish. We know that these fish school up in large congregations, especially in spring and in late fall. When we're able to lo- relocate those fish with tags in them, we can send that information to a contracted commercial fishers that work with our state partners. And then they can circle those tagged fish with nets and they usually oh. re- remove lots of their cohort with them. So it's a very effective technique.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I haven't heard of that. Trader fish.
2: Yo. The carp aren't as active in colder water, so they're a little easier to get your hands on. They have a pretty successful commercial fishery there where they, they come in and remove uh, a bunch of invasive carp and then they sell them to um, a bunch of different outfits, right? They can be used for, for quite a few different things. They're actually considered a delicacy. You can eat them and that they taste good.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about what what your familiarity is with the. Marketing uh, attempts at rebranding the silver carp.
2: Right. That's exactly what it was a rebranding. Because, you know, if you tell somebody you want to eat some carp, right, (laughs) that doesn't go over well because people think common carp and they think of how yucky they probably be. But if you go to Kopi, it's something that sounds a little nicer and a little more elegant, right? So that rebranding was in, in hopes to get more people to realize you can catch and eat and they are good. So.
0: Copious, right? Is that what it's store for? Yeah. yeah,
2: Yeah. Have you guys ever
1: eaten any of these carp? How do they taste?
3: They're wonderful. They make the best fish tacos. They're
2: great. They do, Ah, yeah. What?
1: Native fish that people might be familiar with, would you compare them to as something Hmm. similar? Crappie.
3: Yeah, yeah. They taste like crappie. I would even compare them to perch or walleye in their texture. They're flaky white fish. They do have the large floating bones in their side. That's characteristic of subprenants and other families of fish, but they are lovely to eat. They're mm-hmm. very good.
1: We we're talking with a guy about hog suckers and he makes them fried. And what he'll do is he'll like score the fillets so that the oil and stuff can get in and then it'll dissolve those bones. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever tried cooking these guys, but I mean, you're talking about eating crop here first. You got to think about how many of those you got to catch to make up a mess of fish. You catch, you know, one forty-plus pound carp. That's all you got to do right there.
2: <laughs> all right.
3: Yeah. So. yeah. One flowy makes meal.
0: So you all mentioned some of the control efforts that are going on. I'm curious how much of an impact those are having. And I'm guessing eradication of these fish isn't a realistic expectation, but what are some like longer term goals with, controlling this fish and what are some of your hopes for the future with where we might be in like, I don't know, 10, 50 years from now?
3: We set goals within our river partnerships. Um, Here on the Upper Mississippi River, we've got a five-state partnership. We work within that team to set metrics and goals by which we can evaluate our progress over time. And we've seen an expansion carp in the system um, recently, we're learning how they move. That's part of my job as a telemetry biologist, but it's clear that we can target them at different times of the year using what we've learned from those movement studies. Our friends and partners at USGS helped us develop a technology called real-time telemetry receivers. They use some previous technology that was developed for the USGS String gauge network, basically this sends us an email that tells us which tagged fish are present in an area wow. multiple times a day. And and we can relay that information to our commercial crews and our partners that work with them and just make sure that they understand, okay, there's the fish are here right now. It's cool. That, that's led to a huge increase in captures and, and the reliability of captures over time. In the upper Mississippi River. So since 2018, we've essentially seen a doubling of the total mass poundage of fish being removed from the river since we've implemented that strategy. (laughs) And we've got some delineations above and below uh, certain dams in the river that help us gauge population trajectory. And at least in the upper Mississippi River, we've got a few good signs uh, that show that these control efforts are having an effect on population growth rates.
0: That's great.
2: Uh, Pretty similar for the Ohio where we have a partnership and within that partnership, we have different objectives and and different avenues to study the creature, right? We have some early detection and monitoring. We have telemetry. We have the juvenile side of things, getting better understanding of where successful spawning occurs, which pools and then the commercial fishery side of things. So there's different objectives with each one of those, but it's getting a better handle on overall biology and life history traits of these fish to to better inform us, right? When we we go to make these management decisions on a barrier should be here, or we should do this, or we should do that to to help stop that um, advancement up the river.
1: We've talked a little bit about Commercial fisheries, I'm curious how a recreational fisherman might go about trying to get their hands on one of these fish, especially if they wanted to harvest it from the wild. I understand that that might not be the people you want to be reaching out to because they might not make a huge dent in the population. But at the same time, if people can go out and catch the fish themselves, it might help drive this perception change in terms of eating the fish. So how how can someone catch one of these fish or harvest it?
3: The challenge is that they don't readily take a bait on a hook. Yeah. But bow fishing can be highly effective. There are people who snag them in the tailwaters waters of dams. Um, and then there's some places where they're so abundant, you can just drive your boat and they'll jump in for you. I
2: don't think really target them fishing, right? It's not like you can tie a little plankton on the flyer, <laughs> so you'd have to snag them or bowfish, fish, which I'm sure there's some anglers out there that would really enjoy having a carp jump up out of the water and trying to track it and get it while it's midair and tell the cool story of how I shot a carp out of the air. But mm-hmm. it would be their challenge. I mean, their challenge for us fishery folks to get our hands on them. They're a challenge for for anglers, especially, again, in low-density areas like where I'm
0: at. I was going to ask if you guys have a hard time recruiting commercial fishermen if you have enough or if there's any other resources that are lacking at this point in terms of either knowledge or control tools.
3: Our state partners are primarily the ones doing the recruiting of of fishers. Commercial fishing on a place like the Upper Mississippi River is not a big community. Uh, There's only a small number of people who continue to do it. Um, so we are limited on the number of commercial fishers who will participate in these programs, but the ones we do get are great people and we learn a lot Mm -hmm. from them. The thing is that, especially when these fish move into a new area, we have to figure those fish out. We have to figure out where they're going to go, where they're going to congregate and how to target them most effectively. It's a constant learning process for us and for those commercial fishers.
0: I'm curious with the different offices, you are both Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, you've mentioned state partners. How much of a community is this within Fish and Wildlife and beyond within the range of these invasive carps?
2: That's a great question. I've actually never had the pleasure of meeting Mark. It's the first time we've met. So it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, yeah. We're <laughs> We're actually in two different regions for the service. I'm in region five, Mark in region three, right? He's got his partners on the Miss. So I've got my partners on the Ohio. I'm so far up, right? Like I'm right on the edge. So I'm sure the further you get down, you get a lot more of that communication and that cross pollination, right? But for me, it's establishing partners up here. We're getting the foundation down of getting different programs out there to help us better understand these stretches, right? These far reaches of these species that are coming up. Yeah.
3: Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of coordination going on at higher levels. Uh, People Mm -hmm. like Tyler and me are the boots on the ground, but one of the major groups is the Mississippi Interstate Cooperative Resource Association, and they have an an invasive carp coordinating committee. And so that group works to coordinate invasive carp management across multiple states and watersheds. Uh, Me and and my team here, we do our best to reach out and break out of our silos and and learn as much as we can with other people. Uh, with other offices within Region 3 here and even some down in Region 4 and Region 5, we work together to develop standard methods like phishing assessment methods and aging methods. And we also have collaborative tools that we've developed like telemetry data systems that allow us to share detections information and tag data very quickly and easily with our partners.
1: So even though these fishes are invasive and detrimental here in North America, every fish has something that's great about it, particularly in its native range. So how are these fish regarded and used back over in Asia where they're native? I think it's cool to show both sides and that there's fish where they're native are cool and good and fun.
2: You hit hit the nail on the head. They're a delicacy over there, right? They are a a very
3: common food fish in Asia where they're native and they've fed a lot of people the centuries. In terms of the characteristics of the fish, they're just incredible, incredible species. They're incredibly fast and persistent migrators. With my work on the telemetry program, we've observed fish making runs of 230 river miles in less than 10 days. Here in the Mississippi River, we observed uh, a female carp that made a 750-mile run this last summer Wow! um, up the Missouri River. They move, and they're incredible long-distance swimmers.
0: That's very cool. Do you two have any calls to action you'd like to put out there to the public in terms of invasive species and how folks can help along any point in time, starting with preventing introductions?
3: Yeah, one of the biggest things people can do is familiarize themselves with fish anatomy so that when they do have live bait, uh, they can be aware that small invasive carp might be in those bait buckets and do their best to catch those unintentional releases before they happen. Um, Another thing is never transport fish from one area to another. We don't understand what may be inside those fish. There are lots of pathogens, lots of parasites that these invasive species carry. uh, Also, in addition to just the fish themselves, and we don't want to bring those to other watersheds, uh, but also just being incredibly aware of fish ID so that you don't mix these things up with other fish species. Tyler?
0: Yeah, I
2: think... No, I think that's that's beautiful. That's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Education and and informing the public on on exactly what they have in their hands is huge, and especially for us up here, where we don't have a lot of them, and we're tasked with going out there and doing some preventative education, right? Let them know, like, hey, these fish—they're a little further downriver. They can cause some serious havoc, so we need to be cognizant and wary. And if you see one, let somebody know especially at our lock and dams, right? We have quite a few of them here on the Ohio and, and we've got to the point where the folks that oversee those, they'll, they'll give us a jingle and say, hey, we have some big fish in our old lock chamber. Can you come down and grab them kind of thing? So we're starting to establish those relationships uh, to the point where we can get out and, and remove these, these fish that are starting to, uh, what Mark said, aggressively migrating, an aggressive migrator. I thought that was well said. That's exactly what they are. They push and push and push.
0: To add to Mark, your point on fish ID, just getting to know the native species as well and how cool they are, because that's ultimately what we're preventing with not introducing these non-native fish is we have very, very cool fish that are native to North America that we'd like to keep around.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the point of a lot of outreach materials, especially at boat ramps in this region is helping people understand the difference between things like the gizzard shad and the And the invasive carp so that people can have a quick reference that allows them to make that judgment.
2: That's a huge one. I mean, a gizzard shad at what four or five inches looks exactly like a four or five inch silver carp or one of the invasive carps. That's huge. Understanding that difference. Because gizzard shad is a very popular bait catch catfish and there's a lot of catfish around here Mm -hmm. and you know, somebody's got a bucket full of presumed gizzard shad and they dump them at the end of the day into the river. And there you go.
0: Yeah, what should they do with their bait at the end of the day? What's a better option?
2: Well, if they have a uh, live bait and they're they're done fishing, and just kill all the live bait, toss them up on the bank.
3: Yeah, take them on dry land. Don't put them back in the river.
2: Yeah. Just in, in a parting note, if you think about like the resources that the service puts in there, that all these state agencies put in there, universities. There's a lot of incredibly intelligent people that put a lot of time and whole careers into studying and monitoring and evaluating the movement of these fish. And it's just goes a, a long way to show you how how important it is that we understand these fish and we try to stop that migration and eventually get to eradication, right? That's the ultimate goal is to get rid of all of them. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of brilliant people out there trying to, trying to answer those questions and get to that point.
0: Yeah. Thank you both for joining us. This was a great conversation. really appreciate your insights
2: yeah thanks for giving us the opportunity
3: to share yeah. about our work yeah thank you okay.
0: well get out there and live with live from discover and enjoy all the fish and please brush up on your fish id and make sure you know how to help report and not introduce or spread invasive species into our lovely waters thanks for listening to fish of the week my name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is guy Uro. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the
2: fish.